Hey, Jay. You know, it's really nice to see the Avengers and the X-Men working together so closely. They fight so often. Ah, and for such contrived reasons, Miles. Man, I'm still grumpy over Avengers vs. X-Men. What was that fight over again? Oh, something about the Phoenix Force. It was headed to Earth, and the Avengers freaked out and shot it with a giant space gun. Can you... can you even do that? Shoot an elemental force? Guess you can if you're Tony Stark. So what happened? The Phoenix fractured and fled into the five nearest mutants, who all ended up omnipotent Phoenix hosts. So, kind of the opposite of what the Avengers were going for. Oh yeah, especially considering the mutants in question. Well, Jean Grey, right? No, she was dead at the time. Rachel? Would make sense, but no. The Phoenix Five were Cyclops. Not my first guess, but at least he's got experience with the Phoenix Force. Emma Frost. Telepath. Makes sense. Pyotr and Ilyana Rasputin. Huh? And Namor. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 352 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to more Onslaught. More Onslaught. Yeah, we've kind of reached the point where it's a slog. An onslog, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. I approve of that. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Like, I'm starting to remember where my general attitude toward this crossover came from. Because I remembered not liking it, and then we covered phase one, and I'm like, oh, actually, this is really, really good. What was I thinking? And it turns out I was thinking this part. Again, not that there's not some good stuff, but we're at the portion of Onslaught where a lot of the tie-ins just don't seem particularly necessary. And because there are so many of them, and Onslaught himself is directly involved in most of them, at least briefly... It just seems like Onslaught's main plan is to vaguely annoy various characters with his purple robots. Thwarts, Miles. He thwarts. <laughs> yep. And it's sort of unfair to look at Onslaught the character, or even the core story of Onslaught through that lens. Because, you know, I maintain Onslaught's plans get a little too vague, but overall, it's a great premise, it's a great character, Onslaught's certainly a great visual. You know, you say it's unfortunate to look at the character and the event through that lens, but that lens is part of the event. I mean, it's what we have to look through. I suppose that's true. So, I guess the conclusion we're moving toward, at least from what I can tell, is Onslaught Phase 1 is really good. Onslaught Phase 2 came after Onslaught Phase 1. Yeah, like, this is the point where I get why Onslaught gets so much crap, aside from the general sort of ridiculousness. This is just unnecessarily protracted, and it's unnecessarily protracted in ways that kind of force you to look at the places where the plot thins. Yep, and it's also inherently significant, which of course is going to add more weight to that, uh, because this was the end of a sizable chunk of the Marvel Universe for a while. I mean, we know that at the end of Onslaught, a lot of Avengers-ish characters seem to die and are reborn in, uh, well, Heroes Reborn. And so, in this episode, for instance, of the three books we're covering, two of them are the last issues of Volume 1 of their respective titles, of Iron Man and freaking Avengers. Right, and we're about to hit the last issue of Fantastic Four. We are, yeah. Now... A couple other books that we're not going to be covering also met the end of their Volume 1s with the end of Onslaught. Thor has its last issue, which is number 502, right around here as well. It doesn't have the Onslaught branding on the cover, and I kind of get that, even though it takes place very much within the context of the crossover. It's pretty much just Thor talking to Red Norvell, who's like another Thor, long story, uh, about Thor's past, and then saving a nearby injured man who's injured in the attack on Manhattan by Onslaught, using his medical skills alongside Jane Foster, and then makes the decision to die fighting Onslaught, which he now knows is going to happen, rather than accepting Hela, the goddess of death's offer to become her consort and kinda sorta survive. Perfectly good issue, not really relevant. 
There's also Captain America's last issue, number 454, but that is entirely unrelated to Onslaught. Onslaught isn't even mentioned from what I can tell, so we'll be, we'll be skipping that as well. That's kind of inherently hilarious. I think it's a perfectly valid de- decision. I don't know what the oh, editorial yeah, decision was there, but like to just be like, oh, big crossover? You know what? We're just going to finish up the current storyline and call it. I feel like for a lot of this, we need some kind of third term. I mean, this, is, this isn't necessarily its own phase. It's just kind of the middle lull. Okay, so the the important books are Phase 2, the less important books are Impact 2, so, like, Phase Pact? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick with Onslaught. I think this is Onslaught. Okay, so you have your Phases, your Impacts, and your Onslaughts. Yeah. Well, let us slog onward, then. Uh, but first, let's talk about what happened previously on Slot. Onslaught is a giant red and purple psionic entity born from a lifetime of Professor X's frustration, gently muddled with Magneto's rage as personified by a tiny goblin. We'll get to the goblin later. Onslaught has only grown more powerful now that Professor X has been physically and astrally, it's complicated, removed from inside him, even gaining a new, less human-looking form, which I really wish more phase and impact to artists remembered was the case. Now, Onslaught has devastated Manhattan with an electromagnetic pulse from one mighty hand and a big ol' explosion from the other mighty hand. And now rules over his broken empire, patrolled by psychically reprogrammed robotic sentinels from an enormous Ebon Citadel in Central Park. I'm doing this thing where I hope that if I say things more dramatically, they just inherently get cooler. So far, I think it's working. It's kind of weird that you can reprogram sentinels psychically. You know, Onslaught is partially Magneto, and if we figure that that's all of Magneto, that includes the Silver Age stuff, where he can do pretty much whatever with magnetism. Yeah, I'll buy that. Thankfully, Professor Xavier had the foresight to leave some blueprints for anti-his-powers armor in a secret underground base in case he ever went bad, plans which the X-Men have brought to the Avengers. And the Avengers, for their part, will now spend three issues trying to make some hats. And that brings us to the least relevant to that topic of those issues, The Incredible Hulk, number 445, Dancing in the Dark. Written by Peter David, penciled by Angel Medina, inked by Robin Riggs, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Now, before we dive into this, I want to thank Jeff C. in the comments for a previous episode on our website for telling us a little about a Hulk that we missed when we were going through the Hulk's various altars. Right, and Jeff C. wrote, If you notice in some of the screenshots in your as-mentioned post, Hulk has longer hair and is sort of pea soup green as opposed to his normal jolly green color. This is a mentally unstable hybrid Hulk that resulted from a head injury Hulk had suffered circa the Ghosts of the Future storyline and exacerbated by a battle with a rampaging Thor in Incredible Hulk number 440. The Onslaught story eliminates this Hulk, and post-Onslaught he'll be back to Savage Green again until basically the end of Volume 1. So I think we talked about the Hulk we were seeing in this story being Professor Hulk. Technically, slightly different. I couldn't find a name for this Pea Soup Hulk, so I guess we'll just call him Pea Soup Hulk. Anyway, Pea Soup Hulk is in the New York subway, which is without power like the rest of New York, and is physically dragging a subway car to safety, narrating to himself. Idiots. Should leave them to rot. But he'd like that. Onslaught would love to see suffering and pain. That's a solid enough reason to help. First he took over my mind, then he took over the city. By helping these people, I take back a small piece. And that's how we're going to get him. So I kind of like this. I kind of like the general Onslaught situation. Onslaught fucking up Manhattan, partially with Sentinels and partially with his mighty hands and their assorted blasts and the heroes dealing with their own kind of internal psychological journeys in relation to that. This issue, I think, does that pretty well. Rick Jones, meanwhile, perpetual sidekick, is trying to get to New York to help. This isn't really relevant unless you're following Hulk, which of course we're not, but I do want to mention that he signs a fan's autograph notebook as actor Bill Mooney. 
I personally know Bill Mooney most as Lanier from Babylon 5, but uh, UncannyXMen.net pointed out that the reference is actually probably due to Peter David having been buds with Bill Mooney from having worked with him on the Canadian Nickelodeon TV show Space Cases. Well, and Rick Jones does look a little like him in this issue. I guess so. I mean, he didn't to me as much because, like I said, I'm used to seeing Bill Mooney as Lanier, who uh, has somewhat different hair than Rick Jones, which is to say, not really any. So Hulk returns to the Avengers, who are regrouping and licking their wounds, and they are not super friendly to him. He has never been a hero's hero. He's never really been a member of a team. He's, he's allied with teams periodically, but he's, he's, he's one of those heroes who is as likely to, to end up rampaging through New York and need to be stopped as he is to stop villains. I mean, hell, that was what happened in Avengers number one. Loki manipulates the Hulk and sort of villainifies him and then manipulates the Avengers into fighting him. It's it's a whole thing. But yeah, the only team Hulk has ever really been on long-term that I know of, aside from Hulk-specific groups, uh, is the Defenders. And their whole deal is that they are very explicitly and specifically not a team, even though they totally are. Yeah, they're not a team like Batman works alone. Yeah, I work alone, except for Robin, and the other Robin, and the other Robin, and, okay, those Robins over there, you're all Robins. Am I Robin? We're all Robin! The one Avenger who does feel pretty okay about the Hulk is the Falcon, Sam Wilson, who you may remember from that TV show just now. He's still grateful for the Hulk being kind for so many years to Falcon's nephew, Jim Wilson, who died of AIDS recently as of this time. Uh, Hulk actually even offered uh, Jim a gamma blood transfusion in hopes that it would help, but Jim refused. Jim was actually a character within the Hulkiverse and the Falconiverse for a long, long time. He was around in the 70s, so some pretty good fashion, by which I mean pretty questionable fashion. Now, at this point, Hulk wants to take the fight to Onslaught. Uh, he thinks, you know, Onslaught has just expended a huge amount of energy to basically take down New York. He's got to be regrouping. If they attack him now, they've got a decent chance of taking him down. And Cap points out, well, they've also expended a huge amount of energy. They're really not ready to do that. Onslaught kicked their asses last time. And okay, he has already had everyone behold one mighty hand and then had them behold another mighty hand. But this is Onslaught. Who knows how many mighty hands he's got underneath that carapace-like armor? I mean, and also there are two forms of the armor and the artist can't seem to agree on which one he's actually using. So maybe each set has its own collection of further mighty hands. Now, even though Cap thinks it's a bad idea, Falcon decides he's in. He's with Hulk. And Hawkeye, after he hears the whole story about Jim, says, oh, you know what? I'm I'm into. This is a good guy. I am I am I am on Team Hulk. Vision also joins up because he's an android and he wants to do what good he can before the next EMP from the next Mighty Hand shows up and maybe takes him out for good. Also on Team Hulk is Crystal, who says that she's picked up a bit of her ex-husband Quicksilver's impulsiveness and shames him a bit for not exhibiting the same. Okay, Crystal, your impulsiveness historically has mostly consisted on cheating on partners with other partners. And I mean, I know life is complicated, your marriage was complicated, I don't want to judge, but I'm just saying is all. In all fairness, Quicksilver. I mean, true, I do remember that gag from the Justice League cartoon about uh, the Flash's exes uh, talking about how he was the fastest man alive. No, I think that's that's just... um. Hawk Girl talking shit about him. Oh, okay. Hawk Girl talks shit about a lot of people. Man, that cartoon was great. Hawk Girl was great in that cartoon. Ah, oh, that's a good series. What if we explained that instead of Onslaught? I mean, it, it does have its appeals. We don't know much about DC greater continuity, though. Yeah. Well, the plan for this fearsome fivesome is to take to the tunnels under Manhattan to get to the Ebon Citadel. I mean, okay, so there aren't really tunnels. Uh, there aren't any, like, Morlock tunnels conveniently located there. Also, the Ebon Citadel isn't at all Ebon. Have you noticed that? It's silvery. I think it's kind of like how Beast's coloration was supposed to be black and then gray when he got all furry, but it was colored as blue for coloring reasons. No, this is this doesn't look like black with highlights. This is This looks like it's just silver. Do you think that the creators of the Onslaught crossover knew that Ebon means black and not just an adjective that makes things sound cool? I would be more concerned about whether the colorists and editors knew it. 
Huh. Well, it is a really cool looking castle fortress building tentacle thing. It's got that Age of Apocalypse style swirly architecture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If I knew how to skateboard, I would skateboard there. Yeah, where the hell's Adam X the Extreme when we need him? I've asked that question so many times in my life. Just daily. Ah, Adam X, why hast thou extremely forsaken us? So, yeah, there aren't really tunnels under Manhattan, but there is a Hulk and a crystal. And so Hulk just punches his way through the ground, and we get this nice side-view cutaway of him doing so, as Crystal uses her Earth powers to put the dirt, like, you know, not in their faces. It is delightful. For some reason, this trope, which shows up surprisingly often in fiction, just makes me happy every time. Like, oh, we need a tunnel? Let's punch one into existence. They also specify that Crystal is reinforcing the ceiling and walls of the tunnel, which I appreciate, because I did have some questions about that. Oh man, that would be really ignominious. Let's take the fight to Onslaught. Characters are promptly buried under tons and tons of dirt and die. Yep. Every time. So, up through the Citadel's floor, they smash. Uh, I mean, we don't have any X-Factor members here, but Peter David writes that book too, so maybe that's the connection. And in fact, Onslaught is still weak from his his previous attacks. Hulk is able to shrug off his, his psychic assaults, and Onslaught blasts the other four Avengers to death. Like, to death to death? I mean, Hawkeye's face gets turned into a skull. They're all straight up clearly dead. At which point, Hulk smashes Onslaught into red and purple goo. And is so pleased with himself. I did it. I did it. They sneered at me or turned away from me, left me on my own. But I did what they couldn't, and I'll make them choke on that. The others are crippled or dead, but it doesn't matter. At least... At least you got me. Right, Hulk? And they're all back in the tunnel, alive and with the memory of what just happened. Yeah, yeah, these Avengers really went out on a limb to help the Hulk, and now they know how little he actually cares about them compared to how much he cares about just winning. Like, fuck, Onslaught, that's actually a really good, devious, cruel plan. Like, when you have a telepathic villain with no morality whatsoever and a mean streak, yeah, yeah, that's actually a great thing for them to do. I'm actually kind of surprised that telepathic heroes don't use this more against villains. Yeah, I mean, you know, that comes up so often, especially in X-Men, with Professor X or with Jean, less so with Emma, talking about, you know, how you can ethically use telepathy, and that does seem to involve keeping the deception, I'm not going to say harmless, but at least not cruel. But it seems like playing through the, but your fr- your, you, the people you think are your friends are not actually your friends, you might want to rethink this alliance type scenarios would be pretty justifiable. Yeah, yeah, you would think. And I think that just comes down to morality being weird in superhero comics. Like, violence is fine, manipulation is fine, but if you're going to be a hero, you have to be nice about your violence and manipulation. In all fairness, morality's pretty weird in real life, too. I guess that's true, yeah. Morality and mortality. Mortality terrifies me. So, Onslaught, for his part, yeah, has more where that came from. Every time you think you've triumphed, you'll find yourself back where you started. And every time you die, You'll wonder if this is the true death, or if new agonies await you. And Hulk decides, nope, they are not going to keep going down this route. It is time to just head back. Captain America praises Hulk's wisdom for deciding against attacking. Doctor, it's decisions such as this that will help you earn the confidence of others. Hulk replies. Oh, I'm sure they'd trust me with their lives. And so, that's this issue of Hulk. That is the second of the two Hulk tie-ins to this story. You know, on the one hand, it feels central to the plot because it has so many of the characters who are involved with the greater story. It's got the Hulk and a bunch of Avengers. On the other hand, it amounts to essentially nothing. 
I actually like this one significantly better than the first Hulk issue we saw, and significantly better than a lot of the other tie-ins, because while it doesn't get far in Onslaught, it uses Onslaught as framing for a really interesting character study. I agree, yeah. In a way, it reminds me of, I'm going to say, a better version of the Cable Apocalypse team-up that similarly left the characters right back where they started, but taught us a little bit more about them. But with this, we don't have all the baggage of this giant meeting between Cable and Apocalypse that we've been looking forward to to then be let down by. It's just, here's the Hulk, he's got shitty history with a lot of people, that plays out, and then everybody's sad. Yep, that pretty well covers it. This is not the final issue of The Incredible Hulk, Volume 1, the way we're talking about the final issues of a lot of other comics. So at the end of Onslaught, Bruce Banner, the human portion of the Hulk, will actually go to Counter-Earth, the Heroes Reborn dimension, but the Hulk himself, who now doesn't have Banner's intelligence, it's not Professor Hulk or Pea Soup Hulk, it's Savage Hulk, stays in Earth-616. So we have the Hulk splitting off one to the new continuity, one remaining in the old, which is actually kind of a clever way of handling it. So Volume 1 will actually go on until 2018's Hulk number 717, which is going to be immediately followed by the now-just-ended Immortal Hulk. And I will plug that book as many times as I have the opportunity to do so, especially now that it's a finished story. Listeners, if you have a chance, like, even if you're not into the Hulk, I'm not particularly into the Hulk, Immortal Hulk is a phenomenal book. You have to be okay with some body horror. There's definitely some body horror, but it's very, very good. So that's the Hulk. What's next? Next comes the Invincible Iron Man number 332, Night Never Ending. That uh, portentously titled issue is written by Terry Cavanaugh, penciled by Joe Bennett, inked by Tim Zahn and Mark McKenna, uh, colored by John Callis, and lettered by Phil Felix. Lettered by Phil Felix? Hey, wait a minute. The phrase lettered by doesn't end with Phil Felix. It ends with Richard Sarkis and Comic Craft, doesn't it? Not this time. It actually is really odd seeing non-Richard Starkings lettering. Like, it's almost a little distracting because I've gotten so used to Starkings lettering. I mean, this lettering's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's just different. And different is bad. We fear change. No, it's fine. <laughs> so... With no power and Sentinels swamping New York City, one of the splinter teams of Avengers has to figure out where they can go to make some version of Xavier's psi armor. Now, they're not going to make the full armor. It's, it's specifically stated that they've, they've been monkeying with the designs, and between Teen Tony and Reed Richards, they've figured out a way to sort of condense them down to the simplest possible version. Um, so they're actually just going to make helmets. I'm a little disappointed by this. I mean, the helmets, I guess they're more like face frames. They look fine, whatever. But think about it. We could have all of these characters in mostly similar costumes, but like color-coded based on who they are, even though that would have no logical reason to do it and it would look really cool. But based on the number of characters in play in this crossover, I think that would get incredibly unwieldy incredibly quickly. You really wouldn't be able to tell at a glance. You'd have to have a key. It'd have to be like one of those um, things at museums where they have the big painting of the dinosaurs and then the little tiny black and white thing with the numbers on each of the dinosaurs that tells you which is which. Man, so this great book that I had when I was a kid, Science Made Stupid, has my very favorite version of that, which is their page, page for the first mammals, um, which has, has, you know, the little outlines and the numbers and then just the caption, which instead of a legend just says, in winter, the mammals grew white coats with black number-like markings. That is one of the books I have laughed at the hardest in my entire life. Like, that and The World According to Dave Barry nearly broke me as a child. Oh, and Ronald Rabbit is a Dirty Old Man. Uh, don't give that to children. That's, that's uh, real sexually explicit. But also very funny. Uh, also, Board of the Rings by Harvard Lampoon. Now, I'm just thinking of all the things that I fell out of bed laughing at when I was a child. There were, there were uh, kind of a lot, come to think of it. Yeah, you were an easy audience. I still am. Even for myself. When we proof episodes, I laugh at my own jokes all the time. It's great. It's good to be able to find such joy in things. I think so. So, on this team, um, speaking of things in which you can now find joy, we've got Iron Man but a teenager. We've got Quicksilver and we've got Giant Man. This is a weird, weird bunch, but they work pretty well. 
They do. Uh, okay, you know, I know we talked about Teen Tony in a previous episode, yeah. but this is weird enough that I feel like we at least should briefly cover this deal again. Yeah, he's a teenager. He's specifically, he's the same Tony, but a teenager from the past because adult Tony went evil and I think died. Yeah, it's a little bit like when Beast brought the teenage Silver Age X-Men to the present a number of years ago to sort of show modern Cyclops the error of his ways. Uh, But I guess in that case, nobody died. I mean, okay, Cyclops did die, but not for a while. And in this case, nobody learned from it. Cyclops died very early on. He just came back to life pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. He's died a number of times. I mean, he uh, died kind of after the 12, right? People die a lot in comics. People die do die a lot. So, yeah, this is Teenage Tony. It does make me sad that they didn't capitalize on Tony Stark's tendency to have facial hair and give him, like, a a little wispy mustache like I had when I was 15. There's one panel where it sort of looks like he's got one, but yeah, I wish they kind of carried that through. I I guess I could just go and draw in little mustaches every time I see a copy of this in a quarter bin, but that's probably more trouble than it's worth, and then they'd probably make me buy the copies. Well, it's only a quarter. You could just buy it and donate it back. I guess so, but I was thinking about doing this, like, a lot, so it would add up. I I wish you luck in your endeavors. So there's also Quicksilver, like you mentioned, and the narration here is interesting. His apparent arrogance and volatile temperament are, in fact, impatience. And impatience is the natural price of Pietro Magnus Maximoff's mutant power. I love this, because this has become a core part of Quicksilver's personality, and you can trace it directly back to X-Factor 87, the issue where they're all in therapy. It's like every single writer who was ever going to write Quicksilver again looked at that page and was like, oh, yeah, no, that that actually makes perfect sense. That's just going to be who Quicksilver is going forward. Yeah, it really is the gold standard at this point. The silver standard. So they're running around in in the sewers, and they're joined shortly by Black Panther, who offers them the use of the Wakandan embassy in its super high-tech lab, which solves the problem of where they can make the fancy anti-psi hats. I appreciate that when Black Panther shows up, he basically sneaks up on them from the shadows and just talks all creepy at them and then is confused when they freak out. Yeah, I... I I don't even know. I assume that a lot of heroes feel so secure in their herodom that they're shocked when, like, people are surprised when when they sneak up. I I guess so, yeah. I'm just saying, though, dude, you wear all black, all of the metal in your suit specifically dampens sound. Like, you're gonna surprise people. I almost feel like he should just go, I'm walking toward you, I'm coming toward you, I'm walking on the ceiling, don't freak out, it's cool. It's like when you're a runner and you do the on-your-left thing, like, again, from that other Captain America movie, it's just polite. No, no, there's 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 already sort of a perfect vehicle there. There is literally a song in the Pirates of Penzance called With Cat-Like Tread about sneaking up on people. And I'm going to bring it right back to Board of the Rings, despite mentioning that so recently. Uh, we are stealthy green toupees. Skulking Nights and Sleeping Days, like the Green Toupees, who I think are Faramir's Rangers. It's been a long time. Uh, Yeah, they have their sneaking song as well. Sneaking songs are a time-honored tradition, not apparently in Wakanda. You know, I guess if you're a bard in D&D, you probably have some sneaking songs as well, but they actually work. Huh. So Onslaught floods the tunnels en route, but... Giant Man is able to block the flood and buy them some time by fighting the ensuing burst of Sentinels. And at this point, the Sentinels are keyed into not only mutants, but any biologically or technologically enhanced humans, and particularly Avengers. And they know their continuity. I love when a Sentinel notices Giant Man. Enhanced human, designate, Henry Pym, Ant-Man, Giant Man, Goliath, Yellow Jacket. So I was thinking about this. Obviously, Hank Pym has a ton of code names. I'm sure he has even more at this point. And I was thinking about whether there would be any characters, specifically X characters, who would have more. And in fact... Kate Pride, Kitty Pride, Ariel, Sprite, Shadowcat, Star-Lord, Star-Lady, Professor K, Red Queen... And that's not even counting nicknames. Except Kitty, but that was her name for a long time. Anyway, I don't know, Jay, can you think of anybody with more, like, superhero or supervillain aliases? Kang does not count, by the way. Damn it. 
so I think maybe Kate's our winner. Uh, listeners, if you can think of anybody who has more code names than Kate Pride, I am excited to hear who those people are. With Hank out fighting, Black Panther talks them past the armed guards at the Wakandan embassy, hooks them up with some vibranium as a power source. And this is pretty cute, because Iron Man is in absolute awe of both Black Panther, whom he at one point calls, Your Lord Highness Panther, sir. I'm just imagining he's perpetually going through puberty, and he sounds like that all the time. Oh, unquestionably. And he's also just wowed by the embassy, because in his day, Wakanda was just an urban legend. I do enjoy this whole bringing a teenager from the past thing, because on the one hand, he's a gee-golly, gee-whiz, innocent, wide-eyed teen, but he also is acting like an old man talking about the old days, and it's a fun combination. Tony Stark, born at roughly 45? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. He's had a rough night. He he looks older than he is. At one point, Black Panther also refers to Onslaught as the Dreamer Denied, which is a fucking solid epithet. Oh, yeah, that that's actually great. Although, wait a minute. Does he know that Onslaught is Xavier? Yeah, I guess everyone knows at this point, so... Yeah, yes, everyone knows by now. Okay, well, well done, Black Panther. Now you just need to learn to not sneak up on people and you'll be doing great. Giant Man, with the help of Quicksilver, manages to keep the Sentinels away from the lab for long enough for Iron Man and Black Panther to make the fancy hats. Again, I gotta complain about this Psyframe head design. Yeah, they're not actually very fancy hats. No, no, efficiency has no place in comics. You can draw whatever, people. Come on. Right. Now, I don't think that these should have been full suits. I, I stand by my point earlier, which is that it would have made crowd scenes and group fights incredibly unwieldy if they had been, but I do think they should have looked more Kirby-esque. Yeah, yeah, more elaborate. The hell with this streamlined bullshit. And Black Panther heads off to deal with some Wakandan stuff, and Iron Man fights his way through a Sentinel and delivers the less fancy-than-they-should-be hats to the remaining Avengers. In fact, he flies up in a Sentinel and then pops its head off to reveal that, no, no, it's cool, I was Tony all along. If there was ever any doubt that this is for real Tony Stark, let that doubt be burned away by the light of the Son of Truth. This was the final issue of Iron Man, I believe, which is an odd beat to end it on. It is. Uh, We will get the original numbering back with number 500, which was in 2011. But I don't know, like, from what I understand, the teen Tony plotline had been going on for a little bit at this time, but was basically abandoned as soon as Heroes Reborn hit, and remained abandoned, despite having a years later explanation, once Heroes Return happened. So, it's definitely strange to end the first volume of this long, long-running comic in the middle of a plotline that people weren't really into and nobody basically remembers except when they make fun of it these days. The middle of somebody else's plotline, specifically. Yeah, and I think that's something that a fair number of these books suffer from. Like, we'll get to it in a different episode. Fantastic Four, I think, handles it pretty well. The rest of them? Eh, I don't know. I mean, Heroes Reborn, and thus the end of Onslaught, where all the heroes die facing Onslaught, all the non-mutant heroes, it was editorially driven. It was sales-driven. Like, they wanted to lure Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld back, and so they let them reboot part of the Marvel Universe. I'm imagining, like, a cage trap here. Oh, man, like someone put, you know, the bait underneath uh, the cage and it just fell at the right time? Yeah. Yeah, legit. And then they had to, like, lure them out and figure out whether they could safely release them back into the wild or whether they had to keep them as, like, ambassador artists? (laughs) I mean, Liefeld doesn't stick around anywhere, so he sort of answered that question for himself. So, yeah, that's it for Iron Man Volume 1. Sorry, Tony, uh, don't worry, you'll you'll get to grow up again when you come back, and no one will ever speak of this again except for one time. It's such a weird choice ending it there, like, I keep going back to that, but it's more than any other issue we're looking at today, this one feels like the middle of a crossover, it feels like a team-up, it feels like the middle of something. Yeah, not the final issue of a respected comic. I mean, okay, Iron Man wasn't nearly as big of a deal back in the 90s as he would be shortly thereafter when his his first movie came out. But, you know, still, old shellhead. Guy with probably other nicknames. Tony. He's, he's, he's a little shellhead here. He's, he's, he's teen Tony. He's, he's teeny. Yeah, yeah, he is. Him and his wispy little mustache. 
And that brings us to another final issue, Avengers number 402, appropriately called End of the Line. Written by Mark Wade, with breakdowns by Mike Diodato, finishes by Tom Palmer, colors by John Callis, and letters by Richard, I mean, Bill Oakley. So we open with another subway car trapped underground. Okay, Jay, you live in New York. Is the fact that like half the plot lines in Onslaught are based in the subway, is that representative? Yeah, New Yorkers spend about half to two-thirds of their time in subways. Are you all Morlocks? I mean, the H.G. Wells kind, not the X-Men kind. Both, really. Oh, okay. Uh, watch out for those Eloy. Or I guess they should watch out for you, technically. This scene has a very different feel, though, than the one from The Hulk, because this scene has narration written by Mark Wade. An unscheduled stop on the number three line. The subway train has been trapped under the streets of Manhattan for three hours, and counting. Caught in a sudden Stygian darkness, mystified, terrified at the lack of even the barest emergency light, its passengers erupted into panic two hours ago, back when there was air. Now they wait, sealed inside a steel coffin, paralyzed at the notion of leaving, swimming through the blackness. Afraid of the unknown, and praying for hope. I'm gonna call foul on the running out of air, because even if you don't go outside, you could at least open the emergency exits. Maybe all of the tunnels are running out of air? All of them? I mean, they, they would definitely have less ventilation without, without fans and stuff running, but I, I don't think they would just straight up run out of air. Maybe everyone's breathing, like, really hard. Anyway, the Avengers show up dramatically, lighting up the third rail of the subway tracks with Thor's lightning to send the car careening forward and then having Thor stop it and leading the passengers to safety, and it is all epic as shit. And very different from the scene we saw in The Hulk. In that scene, we just got the passengers complaining and Hulk's bitter internal monologue. This is just heroic. That's the Avengers. That's not the experience the Hulk has really ever had, but this is what the Avengers do and who they are, and I kind of love the contrast. Like, I'm really glad we're covering these two issues in the same episode. Yeah, when you get more than two of them in a room, you basically get a James Horner soundtrack piped in. I wish I had a James Horner soundtrack. Same. I used to have have the theme from The Rocketeer in my workout mix, and I, I have never felt more intensely heroic than while doing literally anything to that music. Oh, geez, I need to add that one in. I usually just listen to power metal. So back up top on the surface, where there's uh, air, I guess, uh, things are really bad. The city is in shambles. There are crashed cars and fires and people panicking and people who have fallen... And that's what the Avengers and the people they rescue emerge to. Now, Avengers-wise, here we just have Thor, Captain America, the Wasp, who, I should point out, is an actual Wasp lady at this point, and the Scarlet... Kind of. Kind of. And the Scarlet Witch, uh, thanks to the other characters being farmed out to other books. But they still feel larger than life. One thing I really like is that... The art team makes them fit the setting, but also look so clearly different, specifically the colors. John Callis colors the various civilians, these sort of subdued, almost pastel tones, and all the heroes are these bright primary and secondary colors by comparison. They just stand out. They are just these beacons amid the normalcy around them. That is a damn good technique. I wish we saw that more. Thor appears to be wearing a shirt again. Discuss. Well... Would you really call it a shirt? Like, it's half bondage harness and half colored-in muscles below the bondage harness. But I actually really like it with this art team. Like, a lot? He looks awesome. He fits in with the other Avengers. He just looks like a 90s version of Thor. I don't know why this is so different from him wearing that outfit on that other cover we were talking about that one time. But it totally works, and I have nothing bad to say about it. 
It's very Masters of the Universe. Oh shit, you're right, yeah. It's got that kind of science fantasy with the bit of bondage barbarian thrown in that for some reason works. Yeah, no, crop top under under extremely short bondage harness look. I've never tried the look. It looks like it buckles. Yeah. But like seatbelt buckles. Do you think that Thor has to have help buckling that? Like, he has really big hands. I feel like his fingers wouldn't be nimble enough. He would need like an Asgardian squire. No, dude's thousands of years old. He is incredibly practiced in putting on all sorts of bondage gear. And armor. I guess that's true. Thor's definitely a switch, no question. So, moving on. The Avengers, bondage aficionados or not, find and help Black Widow. She is being pulled down by a mountain of humanity seeking her help. It's kind of like the Executioner's Last Stand scene from Simonson's Thor. And after they rescue her, which largely involves Captain America being all inspiring and calming, she continues on on her own. And in fact, she will thus miss the final battle of this crossover and will be one of the only Avengers to survive. I mean, okay, they all survive, but you know what I mean. Survive on Earth 616. Yeah. And she'll show up in various other comics for a while and be sort of angsty, which, uh, you know, fair enough. Now, for all his heroic speech, the despair is really starting to get to Cap, and he's trying to stay calm, he's trying to inspire the civilians, but he's kind of at the end of his rope. When finally Team Teeny shows up with their uh, their helmets, which at this point I think are just headbands. They kind of remind me of the dental headgear you see in old movies that I'm not sure that people ever actually had to wear. The kind that's like braces, but with this big metal thing that goes around the back of your head. Yeah, that was a real thing. I knew people who had that. Oh, okay. That seems horribly uncomfortable. I mean, the braces I had when I was a teenager were bad enough. As I recall, it was generally a thing they just had to sleep in rather than, like, wearing around, so you wouldn't have really seen it out much. Oh, okay. Still, how would you sleep on that? You'd, like, you know, roll over the wrong way and poke your eye out. Yeah, that I can't answer you. Hmm. Dear the past, what the hell, love miles. Unfortunately, just as Tony is distributing his impractical dental headgear, Post and Holocaust uncloak and attack. So, we've seen them before. Post was the Herald of Onslaught. He's a big blue guy with white technological scales all over him that do things. And Holocaust... He looks like the Beast, but with lichens. Kind of, yeah. And Holocaust is a big crystalline armor suit with a flaming skeleton inside. He's from the Age of Apocalypse. He's also been working for Apocalypse, albeit mostly in X-Men. And they're just, they're just like minions here. They don't really have any distinguishing personality traits. They're just a couple of big dudes, mostly distinguishable from one another because one is blue and one is red. And they zap everybody for a while. And Cap, you know, again, seems to lose hope, saying, well, we can't beat them. But fortunately, it turns out that he was cut off mid-thought, and what he actually meant is, so we'll have to get them to beat each other, which they do. Yeah, yeah, he just uh, smashes one of Post's weird little button scale things with his shield, which causes Post to cloak, and then taunts Holocaust, and Holocaust shoots at him and actually shoots Post. And then everyone sort of piles on Holocaust and hits him with hammers and blasts and shields and stuff. And then they all pose heroically. They they do, yeah, and the civilians all cheer. It's This is fine. It's a perfectly fine fight, but I think it's just that I've been conditioned to see Post and Holocaust and sort of roll my eyes at this point. It's like, oh, it's the henchmen. What's up, henchmen? Now we're just going to fill some pages with a battle because any personality you ever had is not going to show up most of the time. Well, these are also especially dull henchmen. Like, Holocaust has always been a one-note villain. I wouldn't even go so far as to call Post a one-note villain. I don't think he has that range. I mean, he's a little more interesting in Cable when we learn about his backstory, but here his motivation seems to be, I work for bad guy. I shall do bad things. I don't think we actually learn about his backstory in Cable. I had to look that up. Uh, it's in Cable somewhere. I remember reading it at some point. I think it's before now. I don't know. It's mm. certainly not on display here. But one thing that villainous henchmen are good for is making the heroes look badass especially if those henchmen are powerful and the heroes do look badass and that's sort of part of what this issue seems to be going for it really focuses on the idea that the avengers specifically captain america inspire people to be better to be braver 
to think that the world is going to be okay. And so I think this question of, is Captain America giving in to despair, which interestingly is mostly discussed by the two women on the team, the Scarlet Witch and the Wasp, that's why that's sort of the the through line of this issue. Do you think it works? I don't know. I think it would work better more actively juxtaposed against the Hulk issue. Yeah, yeah, and I guess the only way that they really are similar is that both issues start in the subway tunnels moving a subway car, but they don't really overlap. Like, Captain America is in the Hulk issue, telling the Hulk not to attack dead-on, but then the Avengers take some pretty direct action themselves, so I don't know. And I also don't know that the last issue of a series should have to be in dialogue with another issue to fully work. I will say, of the three issues we're covering in this episode, I personally think this is the best one. You know, thinking about it, I think there's one significant change I would have made, and that is to start it with something that the Avengers couldn't beat. To start it with sort of that overwhelm, because what this issue is is the Avengers being overwhelmed with despair while achieving victory after victory after victory. Yeah, they get beaten up by Post and Holocaust for a couple pages, but it's a superhero comic. When doesn't that happen in a fight? Yeah, and I want to, and 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 I feel like that that despair and that exhaustion fall short. They don't quite land with the power that they're meant to, just because we don't really have much as much of a sense for for what what they're coming from or, or what's what's persisting in them. Like we know, yeah, the Avengers lost a really big fight a couple issues ago, but they're dealing with other stuff now, and they're they're moving forward. And they're moving forward overwhelmingly successfully and scoring the kinds of in- incremental victories that have historically been enough to keep them going. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe that's what this is about, is that that's what the Avengers do. Maybe it having that level of positivity is kind of the goal of the final issue of Volume 1. I don't know. I'd love to hear Mark Wade talk about this if he still remembers it. I, I, I realized we, we were talking about this. We didn't actually quite get to the close of the issue. Oh, uh, Right. As the Avengers are are posing triumphantly, Onslaught shows up on a nearby view screen to taunt them. In his new form. Yay! Allow me to congratulate you on your victory. Enjoy it. For the hollow triumph it is. Pitiful fools! You think you have found a spark of hope in the rabble of humanity? Consider it extinguished and cap and thor smash the tv and everyone yells avengers assemble and that is that for the avengers series you you guys know that's just the the screen you didn't actually kill onslaught that's just that's just a picture of him it's not even the computer it's just the monitor oh jeez one of my favorite bits from into the spider verse of my many favorite bits but yeah that's the That's the last issue of Avengers Volume 1. It also will return to its original numbering with number 500. That'll be in 2004's Disassembled era. So, yeah, it... As a series finale, I mean, okay, we're not, like, big Avengers readers. We've both read some issues of Avengers, but not a ton. We're somewhat familiar. So, as a last issue, I don't know. I I feel like if your long-running comic is going to get shoved into another Lions crossover, because let's be real, Onslaught is mostly an X-Men crossover, and is then going to end in a way that probably you didn't intend, this is not a bad way to do it, to sort of just have a statement of purpose of your team and breaking off there. Agreed. This feels heroic. It feels very centered on the Avengers in ways that I'd want the last issue to be. Hmm. Okay, so, of our three issues, none of which have any X-Men in them, unless we count Quicksilver, uh, what do we think? What works best as part of the Onslaught crossover of the three? Ooh. As part of the crossover specifically, I think it's, it's gonna have to be Iron Man, because that's really the only one that ties directly into the crossover. But I think as a tie-in, Hulk might be my favorite. You know, I would agree. I might put Avengers a little ahead of Iron Man in that regard, because they both have to do with the psychic hats to an extent. But yeah, Hulk is uh, Hulk is solid. Like, Hulk is thrown into a crossover, he's pissed off about it, the character gets some growth, 
and not just because he is a really big character. Uh, so yeah, w- well done, Hulk. I mean, a poorly done Hulk in that issue, but well done, The Incredible Hulk, the comic book. With that, you've got questions. Polymath96 asks on Tumblr, Scarlet Witch's powers have occasionally been retconned to be more scientific. Have Quicksilver's powers ever been interpreted as mystical? Nope. But if you want a kind of cool, different take on Quicksilver's powers, uh, the Quicksilver No Surrender miniseries from a few years back is actually pretty cool. It's uh, not as complex as the whole Speed Force thing from the DC Universe in exploring Quicksilver's powers, but it is fascinating and definitely more interesting than his powers essentially being, I am very fast and thus a jerk. Eddie Webb asks via email, In the Star Trek crossover Planet X, Banshee had a lovely singing voice and even did a duet with Data. However, in the 90s animated series, when Wolverine complains about his sonic scream, Sean says, you should hear me sing. So I'm curious, has Sean Cassidy's singing ability been established in the 616? Now, Jay, when we were talking about this earlier, you were saying that Sean was actually pursuing a singing career when Professor X recruited him. I thought that was the case, although I may be misremembering. I do know for sure that they met up at the Grand Old Opry. They they did, yeah. That is Grand Old Opry, I believe, as someone who's been to Nashville once when he was eight. Uh, but I'm kind of wondering, like, they were in the middle of a concert. Did they just have to talk very loudly to hear each other? Like, one time I saw Metallica as a teenager, and um, I sung along with all of their songs at the top of my lungs, and I think I really annoyed the people sitting in front of me, so maybe... I would definitely have been pretty annoyed by that. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but maybe Xavier was speaking telepathically, and Banshee was using his sonic scream at a specific pitch that only Professor Xavier could hear it. Like, it's like a dog whistle, but it's a it's a Charles whistle. Maybe only Professor Xavier and nearby dogs could hear it. Oh, okay. And so then... Um, All of the dogs also accepted Professor X's invitation to join the X-Men and rescue the original five from Krakoa? Yeah. I would read that. They're good dogs. All new, all different, partially canine X-Men. It's Banshee, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Storm, Thunderbird, Sunfire, and some very good dogs. Yes. We're a fully listener-supported dog cast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters, concepts, and or dogs. Here is the angry Claremontian narrator. Look at you, Clark McKay Mandon. So young. So innocent. So new. So utterly and universally inept. Get it the hell together, Clark. Unless you want to end up like Michael Howell's Minergy. And nobody wants that. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Onslaught continues to continue. And pretty much everyone fights. Oh, well, uh, maybe everyone's breathing, maybe everyone's breathing, like, really hard. I mean, breathing really hard would be a problem, too. (laughs) It's true. Hey, you know, if you think you're gonna die, you fill your final minutes with whatever seems right. Anyway, 